Hello, Microbial Nation. I'm Tess, and thank you for tuning in to The Micro Moment. On today's show, we are talking to one of my very good friends and someone I've looked up to for several years now. This person was one of the first people I met in grad school. She has impacted my life in more ways than she probably knows, from guiding me in my PhD project to enhancing my love of wine to teaching me the most valuable lesson in surviving grad school, which is, of course, it's not all about research. There are so many things you can do in grad school to promote your career and to maintain a good life balance. Today, we are talking to the amazing Dr. Nicole Ginnan. We will discuss her research in plant microbiomes, her career goals in academia, and her advice for people who also have this aspiration, as well as what it means to be a postdoc. Enjoy the show. So I am here today with Nicole. Nicole is a postdoc, and we'll get into a little bit of what that means. But first, Nicole, what are you drinking today? Oh, hello. Thank you for having me. I am drinking Zinfandel. Oh, I do love me some Zinfandel. Australian? Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love red wine. So that is my microbial drink of choice. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and where you work? Sure. So I am, well, my name's Nicole Ginnan, and I am currently a postdoc or postdoctoral researcher in the lab of Dr. Maggie Wagner at the department, or <laughs> in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Kansas. And what exactly is a, is a postdoc? So just like it sounds, postdoc, postdoctoral. So after you do your PhD, you can do a postdoc, which basically allows you to get additional training. And it's an in-between position between a PhD program and a faculty position. Oh, so you've been on this journey for quite some time. Yes, it has been a long journey. Yeah, tell us about how, like what you did for your posts or for your PhD and how you got into botany as a field of discipline that you're interested in. Yes, yes. Okay, so I actually started out wanting to be a medical examiner. And in college, I was a forensic, forensic biology major. So like a CSI forensic stuff? Yeah, all that. I'm very into true crime. Mm -hmm. I took some classes and did some training on blood spatter and ballistics and all of that. Oh, that's so cool. Yes, <laughs> it's exciting. But eventually I decided to switch to just biology because I started doing research in an undergraduate lab at the university um, at Long Island University. So I worked in an ecology lab with Dr. Kent Hatch, and that was when I really started to fall in love with research. And I realized that I didn't need to be trying to solve crime uh, to be able to investigate and solve major issues, and that biology is really another form of investigation. Right. So how did you go from biology to botany? Oh, yes, that was... It kind of just happened. I started out researching frogs and I was looking at frog and toad populations and they were declining because of a pathogen called a uh, chytrid fungus mm -hmm. disease. 
And that's a, is that the skin one, the white fungus? Yes, yes. So it infects it infects amphibian skin. And since amphibians breathe through their skin, it basically suffocates them. It's a really wild pathogen. Yeah, that's crazy. But then I heard that some frogs are resistant to this pathogen because they have beneficial microbes on their skin. Mind-blowing. So then I got really interested in this microbially mediated protection against diseases and these kind of like good microbes versus bad microbes. And then I ended up just doing that in plants. And a lot of that comes with, um, I had a hard time, like at the end of working with animals, a lot of times you have to euthanize them. And it wasn't something that I could really get used to. So working in plants seemed like the right system for me to study these microbe-microbe interactions. Yeah, that's how I got into plants too. Unwilling to kill things. (laughs) Yeah. So do you have a favorite microbe? I do, and it's kind of abnormal. (laughs) Well, I think the question, do you have a favorite microbe, is a little abnormal. Yes, that's true too. Something you'll only find on this show. (laughs) On the best shows, they ask you what your favorite microbe is. (laughs) Well, I study primarily bacteria and fungi, but I actually think that diatoms are the most interesting microbes. They're single-celled microalgae, but the unique thing about them is that they have these really intricate cell wall structures and when you look at them under a microscope or things like that, they basically look like little glass, beautiful ornaments of all different shapes and sizes. Yeah. So if you studied, you did forensics and then you went into frogs and then you did botany. At what point did you see diatoms under microscopes? Cause that's mostly like marine and like ocean samples, isn't it? Yeah. So along the way, I also, I took a marine biology course And I ended up doing some surveying for marine systems in just like as a side thing during my undergraduate. Oh, that's fun. Do you, do you think you'd ever go into like marine microbiology, the opportunity would to arise? Hmm. I think I would definitely love to help out on a marine biology project. I don't think I would lead one. Yeah. It's almost intimidating to think about the vastness of an ocean microbiome. I don't know. I I think I'm I'm happy in plants. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a really exciting time, I think, to be in in plants because I think you know, microbiome started in humans and it's slowly making its way into plants and we're, we're all getting to the real heart of the problem, I think, with, with plants right now. Yeah. But I should note, diatoms are also in soil. Oh, are they? I didn't know that. Yes. So it's there, but it's very under-researched. Mm. So what are, what are they doing in the soil? Do, does, does anyone know? No, I don't think they really know. There's so much going on in the soil. It's hard to know what anyone's doing. I think they're mostly just food for critters and nematodes because they are, they, they can photosynthesize Mm -hmm. 
And then, yeah, maybe just nutrient cycling and food for some other guys. Yeah. So let's talk about your PhD a little bit more because it's, um, it's a big struggle point for a lot of people. So what, what did you find to be the hardest part about getting your PhD? Yeah, I think, let's see, my PhD. <laughs> I took, I actually took six years to get my PhD. Which is not abnormal. It's about normative time for my department that I graduated from. Yeah. I did my PhD with Dr. Caroline Roper, wonderful PI, um, had a great time. I think that one thing I did struggle with is that when I was having a hard time with my research, I would almost avoid it and I would do every other extracurricular activity except for focusing on the issue at hand. And I think that really like spread me thin. Um, but it also was excellent training. So I spent time on different university committees and ad advocacy, you know, advocating for student rights and for, you know, better training and being part of the Graduate Student Association. But it did take a lot of time. And it wasn't till the last couple of years of my PhD when I realized that I needed to just focus and fall back in love with research and work through, you know, the experimental issues I was having. So how did you fall back in love with research? Because I think that's a common thing PhDs go through is you can be really excited about your research at the beginning and then your three or four hits and you're like, I just want to leave. Like, I don't even care anymore. So what was it for you that made you get back into it? Yeah, that roller coaster. Uh, maybe I think it was just more, you know, self-motivation. I I was at, to a point where I was like, I got to get this thing done. I got to focus. And that was also around the same time when I started to closely mentor uh, a single undergraduate student. And so at that time I had to plan ahead and because I was training them and because I had someone else depending on me and my research, I knew that I had to focus and work hard because it wasn't just me, it was someone else too. So I think that probably helped a lot. Right. Yeah. And so I wonder, did you find like doing your extracurriculars, was that good for your mental health or not so good for your mental health when looking back on it? Like, do you think it kept you sane and kept you having hobbies outside of your research or it was too distracting and made the last years a little too stressful? Um, both. I think, and this is a common issue for all young academics, but I would say particularly for female academics is that you kind of get rewarded for being good at something. So then you get asked to do more. So if you're good on one committee, you get asked to do three more committees. And then you get asked to do even more committees and you have a hard time saying no. But then, so at first it's really helpful. You have time, you're getting training, but then as you're getting more opportunities, it becomes more overwhelming and negative. And so you really need to figure out what is important, like what is a good extracurricular activity for me? And where do I need to draw the line and say, I have too much on my plate. <laughs> yeah, that's an important skill to have. It's so difficult. 
Yeah, that's a tough one. So I know some of your mentors personally, and I know that you've had some really great mentors throughout your academic career. So I wonder what your perspective is and like, what, what do you think makes a really, and you've been a great mentor. So what do you think makes a good mentor? I would say the number one thing is being good at communication, both as the mentor and the mentee. Basically, you're forming a relationship, almost a marriage, if you will. And you want to be very clear about your expectations and your limits. And when something is going wrong or when something is going good, you want to communicate that. I think that is definitely something that sets good mentors apart from, you know, an average mentor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Communication is so important. So my final question in lines with your PhD, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask people. And it's one that I asked all the time when I was a PhD, because I think it's just kind of fun and it gives us hope in some way is that during the pursuit of a PhD, we always have this like kind of joke of what is your plan B? If PhD doesn't work and you had to leave school, what would you do instead? Let's see. I did have... I was very focused and I didn't have very much of a plan B, if you will, but I did go through a brief period of being very obsessed with the idea of vertical farming. Mm, That's so interesting, vertical farming. Yes. Yeah. So for people who don't know, vertical farming is you're you're farming vertically, obviously, (laughs) But what helps is you can do that inside and you can do that in the middle of a food desert, like an urban area in the middle of winter and produce local fresh produce. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like cuts out all of this transportation of produce. So it's more sustainable. I even started buying stock in some vertical farming companies. One company I follow closely is Gotham Greens. Oh, that's a cool name. (laughs) Yeah, I've noticed it more on the East Coast. So, you know, Boston and New York. Yeah, I guess we don't have as much um, agricultural land out here. We have to grow up. There's no space. Yeah, (laughs) but I would say that was the only time that I wavered from my PhD pursuit. I was like, I could... I could just become a vertical farmer. Yeah, I've seen some really cool setups where people like have it in their dorm room and they're just growing like all these microgreens in their dorm room. And it's it's pretty wild. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your current research. So in the simplest terms as possible, what is your research? Okay, yes. Yeah. So for my PhD in the Roper lab, I was working on how beneficial microbes can protect citrus trees from a bacterial pathogen. But then for my postdoc, I decided to switch things up. And now I'm focused on how microbes adapt to drought stress, so water stress. And we know that drought, because of climate change, it's real, um, drought is going to be a worse and worse issue in many of the growing regions on the planet. And so kind of the downstream application of my research is to figure out how we can use microbes to increase plant tolerance to drought, which 
could be really helpful for. So what is the crop that you work on now? Yeah, I, I work on maize, which corn. Yes. I, I find it really funny because now I live in the Midwest and I grow corn for my research. Uh, I also work on a non-domesticated relative of maize or corn. It's called Eastern Gamma Grass, and that's part of tall grass prairies. So I've been able to sample some prairie remnants, which is a very unique and cool landscape if you ever get to see it. So does that produce like a corn-like fruit that you can eat or no, you can't eat it at all? You, I did see one weird article from the 60s (laughs) where someone tried to make flour out of Eastern gamma grass seeds. Like, you know, how you make corn flour. They tried to do that and, and said you could use that, but it was the sixties. <laughs> yes. And I don't think the seeds are very tough. They're, they have a hard enclosure around them. So I, I don't think you can eat it, but it is it is a very important plant for restoration of prairie lands. So in your work, you do a little bit of field work. You go to the field, you actually sample stuff. You do a little bit of lab work. We are actually in the lab doing stuff. And then you do a little bit of bioinformatics. So you do everything. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm lucky to be in a place where I can do all of that. I think that it really helps. So when you're kind of you need a change of scenery sometimes, right? So you can be at your computer for a couple months and then you get that chance to go out into nature for, you know, a couple weeks and then a little bit of lab work. It really breaks it up and helps you get through the monotony. So do you like them all the same or is there one that you kind of like a little more than the others? I would say I am partial. Okay, I would say I I like lab work work the least. Mm -hmm. And I like, I like field work a lot, but sometimes that is tough. That's tough work. Mm, It's hard labor. (laughs) Yes. And then on the other side of that, I think that computer work is really satisfying, especially bioinformatics. It can be so difficult, but then once you get it, it, you're on cloud nine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Bioinformatics is like, it's like a drug, like it's terrible and you hate it. And then you get another hit and you're like, this is amazing. Like, yeah. <laughs> or an abusive relationship. Almost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a love hate for sure. Yeah. So uh, I know that you recently published a pretty cool article that talked about dysbiosis in plants. And so I was wondering if you could tell everybody what dysbiosis, what the concept of dysbiosis is and how it relates to plants. Sure. And you're, you're the first one that kind of uses dysbiosis in, in plant microbiomes, right? Well, I would say I'm, I'm not the first person. And while I was writing this paper and trying to convince my advisor that dysbiosis was what we were seeing, there was a paper published that used it in, in science. Yes. They were looking at sugar beet dysbiosis. Hmm. It's definitely a term that's used way more frequently in the human microbiome side than in plant microbiomes. Yes, exactly. So dysbiosis basically just means that a host has a microbial imbalance, or we would consider like an unhealthy or unsupportive microbiome. I think the issue with using the word dysbiosis sometimes is that 
it's really hard to define what a healthy microbiome looks like. So then to also say this reverse, like it's dysbiotic, it's kind of difficult because we don't actually know what a healthy microbiome necessarily looks like because it can look like a lot of different things. Right. But what we do think is that some microbiomes are more resilient or tolerant to stress. And so that would be a, a healthier microbiome. And on the reverse side of that, some microbiomes are less stable and more likely to be dysfunctional or dysbiotic. But it's, yeah, it's not quite understood. It could be caused by a number of things. So what do you think is kind of influencing the a microbiome to be stable or not so stable? Is it the host? Is it the environment? Is it the microbes themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of things. I would say most of the time, dysbiosis is caused by an external pressure. So something like if if a person takes antibiotics, you know, and you're going to be killing off a bunch of your good microbes as well as, you know, the, the bad microbe that you're targeting. And that could cause some dysbiosis. And also for plants, like some extreme climates or, you know, a hurricane, some extreme weather could possibly induce dysbiosis. And also for my recent publication, we focused on how an invasive pathogen could induce dysbiosis in a plant. Interesting. If you had all the money in the world and your own lab and you could go do research on anything that you wanted to do, what would you research? (laughs) That's a good question like a dream scenario for a researcher. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, I think I'm I'm kind of boring. Like I would still want to do the research that I'm currently doing. I don't think that's boring. That just means like, you know what you want and you're going to go get it. Yeah, I think I'm already doing what I think is very important and what I like. I mean, I think understanding beneficial microbiomes and how they impact hosts is, is really going to lead to breakthroughs in medicine and agriculture. And also I'm really obsessed with this idea of precision agriculture or precision medicine, which is just like very individualized for a specific person or for a specific soil type. And I think like understanding microbiomes is how we're going to do that. And that's what I'm currently doing. So, so is that where you see research going in the next 10 years? Or do you think that's further down the line? I think it's going to take us a, a little bit longer to get to, you know, very personalized farming, but I I think that the next steps in research. So right now, most people, you know, in In my PhD, I researched uh, how microbiomes interact with pathogens, and now I'm researching how microbiomes interact with environmental stress, drought. But I think that like the next steps is we're going to have to see how microbiomes interact with both of these things at the same time, because that's what's happening in nature, right? We know that drought exacerbates um, pathogens and pest pressures, And that those things, you know, they're combined in nature. And so we need to know 
how the microbiome functions under multiple stressors. Yeah, it is. It will be interesting the more technology that comes out and where things end up going. So do you have anything else you'd like to share? Oh, sure. I guess I would say if you're, you know, if you're interested in science and you feel very self-motivated, then do it, even though it's scary. I mean, I know a PhD can be intimidating, but it can definitely be worth it. And I know that there's also a lot of people don't want to do a postdoc or maybe they don't want to stay in academia at all. Um, But I would say that it can also be a very nice place to be. You might not make the most money as you would in industry, but it can create a pretty stable and nice community around you and almost feel like a work family or a lab family. And yeah, so I think like don't settle for a community that's not supporting you because there's lots of scientific communities that do. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on our show and sharing with everybody your microbe moment. Thank you for having me. Well, Microbial Nation, that is the end of our show. What did you think of Nicole? She's pretty swell, huh? If you like today's show or think someone would benefit from hearing some of this advice, please go ahead and share it with a friend. And as always, you can find us at microbigals at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Reddit at microbigals. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S. See you next week, everybody. Bye.